Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and joined in studio today, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, how are you? Good, thanks, Steve. We're uh, Yeah, it's a wonderful day. We both remain a little bit under the weather, so we'll, uh, we'll try to keep from coughing in uh, your collective ears. So, yeah, yeah, between your cough and my uh, cough and, right. um, and Lee's dogs in the background, we'll, <laughs> we'll have a little bit of a We might not win the best audio award for this particular episode. <laughs> anyway, um, we're, uh, we're doing a series of podcasts about the changes coming up for higher education, and they are wide-ranging and many. And uh, one of the things that got us started about this was a special report from the Chronicle uh, for higher education that is entitled The Looming Enrollment Crisis. And um, one of the writers that most intrigued us with his particular take on how we can weather the storm, which is the title of his article in this special report, is uh, joining us today from Baltimore. Why don't you introduce him? Yes, we're so delighted to have Lee Gardner with us today, a senior writer with the Chronicle for higher education, the Chronicle of Higher Education. Lee, thanks for joining us from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And we hope that um, the dogs in the background there at your place make a little noise so that we get that color. That's right. It adds <laughs> oh, well, a lens uh, of realism I, uh, to the whole thing. I, I, I can't promise anything either way. So. <laughs> so what we're laughing at is that you've got three dogs there and you're working from home today, so... Um, hopefully, we'll get a little bit of accompaniment to our our discussion today. We we like we like babies and animals on this show. <laughs> that happens all the time. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'd love to get right into your article about weathering the storm. But but bigger than that, it feels to me like every time I open the Chronicle of Higher Education, there's at least one story about these changing demographics and the challenges that universities are facing over enrollment changes and how that's affecting uh, all of us? Well, I mean, in some ways it's become the story. I mean, you know, higher education uh, is dealing with a lot of different issues and, you know, some of them are very thorny and difficult, but I don't think that any one of them feels as immediate for a lot of institutions as, um, you know, their worries about their enrollment. Um, you know, that's critical to the enterprise for private institutions. Um, I mean, it's, it's especially now that state support is not what it once was, uh, it's critical for public institutions. And um, we know from, from the, the reporting that we do and the people that we talk to that uh, many schools are having trouble making their classes, they're missing their classes, they're not making their classes as easily as they used to. Uh, and so this is top of mind for many, many folks. And, you know, that self-perpetuates, right? I mean, if, if, if we write a story about enrollment and everyone goes crazy and clicks on it, then we know, well, that's a good story to write uh, to keep in mind for the future. So we know people are interested and for good reason. Yeah, it feels like, um, at least as we look at the data that's out there, um, and uh, just looking around us, you know, where we are here in Utah, that, that the issue is most pronounced in New England and then the Midwest, and as the time continues on for the next five years, um, to, between five and ten years, that it continues to move west. And so we, we feel in Utah that we're very fortunate today, but we... We have to expect that there's a fair chance that this issue is going to um, be at our doorstep pretty soon. And so we're trying to learn what we can from those that are already in the middle of this. 
Right, and there there are parts of the country that are projected to see uh, as much as a fifteen percent drop in the number of you know traditional age college students who are going to go to college. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a, a, a academic named Nathan Graw who's um, whose work's been getting a lot of attention because he really ran the numbers that 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 drove home the the gravity of the problem for a lot of areas. But you're right. I mean, there are severe declines projected for um, the Northwest, uh, sorry, the Northeast uh, and the Midwest and Upper Midwest. Um, and other parts of the country are going to lose, um, are going to lose um, some of that population too because of demographic issues. But, you know, the biggest thing that's, that everyone's going to feel is the recession uh, baby bust, you know, the fact that kind of when the, when 2008 came along and the economy tanked, um, you know, people had fewer kids for, for a variety of reasons. And, and that generation, believe it or not, is now just getting ready to, to, uh, come to the age of graduating high school and thinking about what they're going to do next. Uh, and so in addition to all the other demographic changes that are going on in the country, uh, everyone's going to feel that. One of the, yeah, and um, Nathan Graw's book, uh, in his uh, projections, he's projecting that uh, in our region, enrollments will continue to climb for the next uh, maybe six years or so, and then they're going to drop back to current levels. So we're yeah. we're kind of in a bubble, according to his data. Right, so, and I think that a lot of institutions right now um, are – uh, you know, actually been working on some reporting recently, looking at some institutions that are growing and in some cases growing pretty rapidly. Uh, but a lot of folks at those institutions are now sort of wrestling with the idea of, well, so, you know, we have this ability to grow. Do we keep growing knowing what's coming, that there may be uh, a retraction in terms of uh, the, the type of students that we're going to be able to get and that we're used to getting? Um, you know, do we hire more tenure lines? Do we you know, build up this infrastructure to um, accommodate students who in 10 years may not be here. So there's, that's another kind of uh, fun aspect of all this is kind of thinking about those issues. Yeah, the the environment is um, nervous enough that throughout the whole country, the number of faculty members given tenure has decreased significantly. It's hard to make a lifetime investment when you aren't sure what enrollment numbers will be like in 10 years or 15 or 20 because a 10-year a decision is a 30-plus-year decision, 30- or 40-year decision. We we have continued to add tenured faculty members here. We've continued to grow. We're at Southern Utah University. We're up about 51% over um, five years ago, six years ago. It's um, It's been really great, healthy growth, but... Um, but everybody in our state is trying to grow, and the aspirations of growth at every institution are greater than what the students were going to make possible, actually. Well, and, and we're at the uh, additional disadvantage of being by far the most rural of the uh, universities. Uh, so we're the most remote, most rural of the state universities in Utah. And so, so people have to really want to come here. And as... Uh, you know, as as economies contract or as other issues make themselves known, the tendency is uh, we think that people will choose to stay home to, uh, at a university nearer to their home rather than venturing out to come see us. Yeah, we we believe that we're going to keep growing. Yes, absolutely. But, but we but we're trying to learn um, what we can about um, the challenges across the country so that we can be prepared and. And continue expanding so that we can expand opportunities for students and all that. Um, I was particularly fascinated, um, Lee, with in your article just a whole bunch of little um, lines that you've written. And one is, college leaders still pin their hopes more on salesmanship than on reconsidering what they're selling. Talk to us about that for a minute. Well, that um, came somewhat directly from uh, a very smart person I talked to several years ago, um, a consultant actually, and frankly, I enjoy talking to consultants as sources because um, they visit a lot of institutions and talk to a lot of different people. And so they get a perspective that 
you know, someone who spends most of their career at one or two institutions don't necessarily. Um, and this very smart person I was talking to uh, said something that stuck with me, which was, you know, a lot of institutions spend a lot of money on talking about how they're different. And you don't see that many spending money on actually being different. <laughs> You know, uh, most institutions and, you know, uh, there, you know, there's a lot of talk about finding your, your niche and what makes you unique and talking about that. And that is very, very good advice. But most institutions are pretty much like most other institutions. And, and there isn't a lot of differentiation above, you know, um, program level. You know, uh, some places have their special thing and some places have the thing they're known for. And that's great. And that's, you know, important for again, being able to make yourself special in this market. But I think as conditions get more challenging uh, as they are right now, um, there's still a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who are feeling like this is just a marketing problem that we're going to be able to, to basically talk our way out of this, to advertise our way out of this. You know, if people just knew about our great program and X, then we would have no problem filling the classes. And in some cases, that's just not true. Uh, you know, are there still a lot of students in your area that want to study X? You know, um, is there someone down the road who is has a great X program and they charge less money? Um, you know, I, th I think that one of the interesting things that's happening here, and, and you kind of touched on this a little bit with the tenure lines, is um, people are having to rethink what they offer. And, and people are having to rethink what it is that they offer that people want that students want you know for decades there's been this um assumption and it's been borne out you know pretty much every year that you know we offer this particular sort of spread of classes and gen ed requirements and major requirements and this will be something that's valuable and people will see this value students and their families and employers and um this will continue to, to sustain us and a lot of those assumptions and a lot of those sort of uh, rules of thumb uh, clearly apply less than they used to uh, in terms of what institutions offer and, and, and what it offers students. And I, that, maybe that's kind of general, but I just think that that people, the students and families are really questioning what a college degree is and what it means. And institutions have not perhaps started questioning that as much as they should be right now. Yeah, and are you seeing institutions fundamentally change? I mean, I, you've got some data here in your um, article about the fact that the majority of enrollment officers and university administrators are putting money into marketing, and a minority are putting money into creating new programs based on student demand. Right. That was part of our uh, the survey that we conducted for um, for this uh, for this uh, report. And you know, it's survey data, so it's it's, it's not uh, necessarily you know perfect. Right. But I think it does get at something interesting, which is that right people still think of this as and marketing is important. I mean, for a long time, I, I you know this is something I write about a bit as well. And for a long time, uh, for for a really long time, higher ed thought of marketing as something that was beneath it or something that was not done. Not dignified. Uh, and I think, right, uh, among other things. And now I think people have an understanding that especially in this, uh, in this uh, environment, that marketing is really important. You have to be able to, to articulate, you know, just the stuff we just talked about, you know, who you are and what you have to offer. Um, but it can't just be a marketing fix. I think that, um, you know, the idea of uh, uh, offering new programs and potentially not offering other programs, that's the tricky part, right? That's where people start to get nervous, right. um, yeah. especially, frankly, people in the humanities, because a lot of the programs that institutions are adding are in healthcare, they're in data science, they're in uh, all these uh, uh, areas that are much more career-oriented, um, are much more sort of uh, 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 pointed at uh, uh, direct employment opportunities and things like uh, you know history and other things are sort of um, 
getting less traction with people who want to major in them these days. And, you know, personally, that makes me, I mean, I was a liberal arts uh, 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 person and, you know, I was an English major and, you know, I loved all that stuff and still do, but it is not necessarily something that, you know, people are voting for with their wallets, so to speak. Um, you know, there are fewer majors in those disciplines. And I think that that is uh, causing a lot of institutions to sort of question their mix of programs. And it probably should be. I mean, again, as much as it makes me sad to say that, um, it's just not sustainable to necessarily for many institutions to offer that complete broad spectrum of things and expect um, the same sort of uh, subscription, if you will, that they might have gotten 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, I I have an undergraduate degree that's a liberal arts degree as well, and it's um, it's served me well, very well. But there aren't very many majors, <laughs> many students majoring in right in in those today. And some of our faculty, um, of course, you know, to, to describe faculty means to describe people from all walks of life, because some of them are teaching philosophy, and some are teaching engineering, and everything in between. Some of them are actually teaching music, Steve. That's right. Uh, occasionally, you run across an employed musician. <laughs> I'm I, I'm a longtime music professor, Lee. That's the inside <laughs> joke. Sorry. So when we talk about what the faculty think, we, what we're talking about is what a cross section of the entire um, population thinks, which which is a whole lot of different different things and different ideas. But but some faculty think that we should be very, very directly focused on preparing students for careers, and some people think that we shouldn't be preparing people for careers at all. We should be just teaching them how to love to learn and to just be, to have this wonderful experience. But actually, we can accomplish both of those at the same time by bringing students in for um, training for a career, and while they're here, teach them to love to learn and to read and all those kinds of things. But we have to do it in a way that gets them excited, gets the students um, excited and makes them feel like there's a relevance to all of this for them. Oh, certainly. I, I think, and I think that that's kind of the ideal, right, is that you want to, to, to graduate students who um, have a deeper, richer understanding of, you know, the, their world and, you know, how to learn and, and how to navigate in it and also who have, you know, some uh, marketable skills as much as probably some classics professor is hearing is cringing hearing me say that. Um, but you know, the, another piece of this is that you have to do what's uh, economically sustainable. You know, I, I sometimes joke that my, jo- my job is to write the stories that make professors sad because they're usually about money and the, the importance of and the limits of what money can do. And, um, you know, a lot of institutions are, finding that they do need to adjust their program uh, uh, offerings. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to offer that broad education, but they can't maybe spend as much money on it as they once did. They need to spend some of that money because they probably don't have more money on other things, um, other programs, new programs maybe. And so while I think most people in academe would, um, would agree with you that 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 sort of mix of, uh, of outcomes is, is, is ideal and important and maybe even critical. How you do that is something I think that a lot of people are having to wrestle with, um, just, you know, financially, because, uh, a lot of how colleges operate these days is not financially sustainable. Many colleges, not all colleges, but a lot of them, it's, they have a lot of, things to, to try to fix or, or reconfigure. Well, it's very difficult for universities, colleges to make significant adjustments because <clears throat> in order to build a new program, sometimes that means you have to reallocate resources. And, and if things are just a little bit tight, then it's uh, it's a real challenge. I, I, I served in uh, the Utah legislature a number of years ago, and I remember... Um, somebody coming to me saying, we need more money for this program. You know, we need money for math for all the schools throughout the country, for all the schools throughout the state. And and I remember saying, you don't have that money? And they said, no, we don't have the money. I said, well, what about this and this and this and this, where you can reallocate from? (laughs) 
Did they not want to hear yeah. that? That's, they didn't want to hear it. They just want more resources so they don't have to make any hard decisions. And, and frankly, we all feel that way. We all are that way in all aspects of our lives. We, we want um, to be able to expand and grow and um, broaden and deepen our offerings without having to make difficult financial decisions in doing it. it uh, right. And I, go, go ahead, Lee. Well, no, I think you, you really kind of hit on the crux of the current situation there is that, you know, everybody wants more money, as, as several people have told me at various points in my reporting. You know, right, every department would like more money, every school would like more money, every college would like more money. Um, but that is not going to be realistic for most institutions in the current environment and certainly not looking ahead. And so then it does become a matter of hard decisions. You know, this, this limited pot of money that we have, how are we going to use it? How are we going to make the most of it? And, you know, yes, that's, I think where people are having to make some of those hard decisions. They're having to think about, you know, if we need to invest more in this, what can we invest less in? As we sometimes talk about in the Chronicle newsroom, what can we stop doing? You know, because if you just keep adding things that you offer and adding things that you do, and you don't similarly expand your ability to do those things, then at a certain point, you're it's it's unsustainable. And I think that that's where um, a lot of colleges have have found themselves. They 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 can't rely on growth just because of the the the, the enrollment market. Uh, and so doing something different is going to require thinking differently about what you do with what you have, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, and one, of the, one of the benefits uh, here at SUU um, for having grown uh, 50% over the last five years is that, I mean, we're half bigger than we were five or six years ago, is that with that growth— you can bring in new resources, you can add new faculty, you can open up new programs, and so you've got those resources to expand, but, but once the growth stops, then there are no resources to expand. The only way you can create new programs, my, my heart goes out for the schools that are already in this um, flat enrollments and, and declining state revenue support, um, because there is no way they can start a new program without canceling one that they've got and eventually i suppose all of us will be there but fortunately it's not as challenging today for us here we're actually in a very good spot but we want to be in a good spot that's right forever (laughs) well right everyone would like to have no troubles forever but that's not that's not typically how it works and you know there are there are options you know i mean i think that you know, a lot of uh, public, regional, and comprehensive universities have not looked to fundraising in the past as much as they could or maybe should, and that's starting to change. And you know, another way to to do new things is to find someone with resources to help you pay for them. And so that is an option is going to be an option uh, for some colleges uh, going ahead. So it's maybe not completely dire, but that's not easy and it takes time and that takes investment itself, right? Having a a good fundraising operation uh, takes money. Uh, It takes money to make money as the old uh, cliche goes, but it's true in this case. Um, And so, you know, fundraising can be one way to, to, you know, to add new programs or to do new things, but that is not something you're going to be able to bank on uh, year after year after year. And so, you know, it's an exception, not the rule. Here's a here's a comment from your article that I I thought pointed a finger at everybody, <laughs> in a way. Um, especially for private schools, outcome data are emerging as critically important. It is frustrating that lower cost state schools get praised for their cost and value, but frequently don't get called out on their low poor outcomes like retention or four year graduation rates. It's easy to say the liberal arts schools are out of touch and they're in trouble, but it was interesting to to put that on the other side and say, what are the state schools doing that they should be doing better? Uh, yeah, I think that um, 
um, for a long time, um, public institutions, I can't say they got a pass, but completion and retention was not their necessarily considered their job. Access was the job, right? Getting students an opportunity to go to college and um, giving them that opportunity and, and, you know, setting it up for them and say, here, here is your opportunity. Uh, and then um, that did not always lead to good outcomes. In fact, it often did not lead to good outcomes. And, and sometimes in the majority of cases, it did not lead to good outcomes. You know, um, I, years ago, I spoke um, uh, with a guy named David Dowell, who used to be the uh, provost at uh, Cal State Long Beach. He's since passed away, sadly. But, you know, uh, I was still relatively new to covering higher ed. And he pointed out that, you know, they had had um, a, a graduation rate. I forget whether it was six year or four year. I think it was six year something like 35%. Um, and that it had been that way for a really long time. And I know that there are other Cal State institutions that had similar uh, graduation rates. And I know that there are public institutions in other states that had similar graduation rates. And for a long time, that was not something people worried about a lot. Uh, it was all about access and getting more people access to higher education. Uh, now, clearly, for a variety of reasons, people have a better understanding that, you know, if your enrollment is not where you would like it to be, doing a better job of retention can help that. Uh, keeping people in school, keeping people in school keeps them from borrowing money if they, if they end up doing that, and then leaving with no degree, which is maybe the worst outcome of all, owing money on something that you, that you never actually benefited from. Um, and so, there is definitely, um, and I think I think pretty much nationwide uh, public institutions get it right that they they understand now, uh, and state systems and the people who run them understand now that 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 is is just as important as, as access, if not more important, is providing that uh, support that you need to um, to to make it that, that you can't just open the door; you have to help people. Uh, navigate the path on the other side of the door, not to extend the metaphor too far, um, which is, you know, important and, 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 you know, probably long overdue. Um, yeah, we have, um, we have a state policymaker that referred to this problem as suspended capital <laughs> to say that um, students that have invested in getting a degree, the state has invested in them getting a degree. It's good for them. It's good for the state's economy. And when they don't finish, it's kind of like suspended capital. It's just sitting there. But we have we have public schools in Utah that have graduation rates of thirty five percent. And and Steve, I remember, and and maybe Lee, you were in a similar situation. Um, you may not be as old as we are, but I remember when I was in college, nobody seemed to notice or care particularly if I finished or didn't finish. It wasn't it wasn't the focus. And I and today um, we are seriously focused about that. Yeah, retention and completion. You can't drop out without getting a, a quick little interview about um, why and what can we do to help you stay in, and then we'll call you after you've gone. And and um, we're doing all kinds of um, work in advance. Yep. It's um, interventions I, and outreaches. And this is probably one of the best outcomes of this enrollment crisis is that. All of our institutions will recognize that the best source of recruiting is our own students. And so um, we can keep our own students. If we can keep our own students, we have to recruit less in at the front. Right. And I don't actually know uh, in terms of affordability, which is uh, cheaper, but I'm going to bet that uh, retaining students is cheaper than recruiting uh, a whole raft of new ones, especially now that recruiting is getting tougher. Yeah, well, one of the things about retaining is you have to you have to be delivering to the students what they really want because after they arrive, then they really discover what kind of a school you are. <laughs> right. Oh, and and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, in terms of, I mean, when I went to school, it, it was access, right? You 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 know, you were admitted and you paid your bill and you showed up and 
And, you know, I remember uh, my first semester in school, like literally being pointed to a big room. Uh, I'm old enough that this was not something that was screen based. And there would be printouts on all these bulletin boards. And you were supposed to go around, look for sections of classes that you might want to take. And it would have the time and, you know, other information. And you were supposed to cobble together a schedule like that. And a lot of things <laughs> were designed that way. It was, and you know, the presumption was, and it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a ridiculous presumption is you're an adult, right? You're, you know, you're a person who's graduated high school. You should have some clue how to do that. And, you know, I figured it out, but in times past, students were, again, you, you, you were given this opportunity and then you were, it was up to you to make something of it. And, I think that now people understand that there's a much better outcome the more you help people uh, make the most of, of that opportunity. We were we were talking uh, with people in our marketing department a while ago, and you know, what kind of things do we say about ourselves that would attract students to come? And and um, <clears throat> we love we love the idea that we're a caring campus and that we really take care of students. Um, our enrollment or our retention leaves gone up by about 16% over the last four or five years. So we've, we really think we've got a great story to tell. But, but when we talk to high school seniors, I think that they all think that every school <laughs> has that same kind of an environment. Right, <laughs> I, mean, I right. think that well, when, you're, it, when you're a high school student, you're just so excited to get to college. Well, and, and you assume the college is an awesome experience. You very much have a, a group of people around you at the high school that cares very deeply that you're in class and where you're supposed to be and all those things. When those constraints are lifted at the college or university, you're, or maybe you're presuming yeah. as an incoming freshman that you'll have that same group of people around you, and it's a little different at the university. This is, this is, is going to be a really very, very positive outcome to this enrollment crisis is that we're all going to – um, think through what we're doing and how well we're doing it and are we taking care of students needs and have we um, advanced beyond mere dry lectures some lectures are awesome by the way I've had some fantastic lectures but um, but but you were while we were while we were off the air Lee you were talking about the experience of your children who are who are teenagers and and how different their life and learning experience has been, and and it uh, we, uh, Scott and I thought it was an interesting cautionary tale for those of us in higher ed. Could you share that with us a little? Well, well, sure. So, you know, when I first started working for the when I first started working for the Chronicle, um, you know, one of the things that happened was I ended up visiting a lot of college campuses, and I was I was really struck by walking around having this feeling of, yeah, right this is great. I remember this. I remember that, you know, and I would walk into uh, a lecture hall and I would know what that was. And I would have all these memories and associations with it. And it's like, it was a very kind of um, comforting and familiar feeling. Um, but, you know, I have uh, two sons who are now both teenagers and even that far back, I was, I started to think, well, what does that mean though? What does that, you know, what does that bode? For my own kids when um, they are ready for this step. Um, you know, as we were talking before, you know, uh, I pointed out that um, uh, my kids have never known a world without Google. They've never known a world where they couldn't reach in their pocket and have access to almost any kind of information you can think of, including probably some that we would rather them not have. Um, and in their own educations, they've been taught in a really different way than, than I was and, and probably you were, you know, uh, a lot of project-based learning, uh, a lot of uh, sort of uh, group projects, um, uh, not a lot of sitting in a chair and uh, watching someone standing in front of a whiteboard talking and taking notes for an hour. And it started to occur to me that the fact that um, college seems to operate pretty much the way that it did when I was in school, low these many years ago, is maybe not an encouraging sign that uh, today's students and today's students not only have uh, different expectations in, in terms of how they might uh, best learn, but they also um, have different expectations about what the college degree maybe should be for and, and what it is. 
And so I think that um, colleges sort of uh, continuing to offer what they've always offered in the way that they have always offered it unexamined is a potentially kind of uh, dangerous, treacherous uh, uh, way to way to tread. Uh, just because I think that um, you know, if my kids show up at college and every one of their classes is them sitting in a chair and being expected to be quiet and listen and nod uh, while the sage on the stage uh, tells them what's what. You know, I think that that's not going to be the experience that they want or maybe need. It's not the world that they're uh, moving into. At and least. it's yeah, it's certainly not the the, the world that that they're moving into. You're right. I mean, it, it's. I mean, and I say this with all the the you know the affection and respect that you know the professors that I had when I was in school. I mean, I feel like I got a really good education and much of it was in that very traditional format, but I just think that, you know, students are different. Uh, the world is different. And, you know, I know that uh, universities are not necessarily do adapt to design to adapt, uh, quickly or, or in some cases not really adapt at all. Uh, but I do think that that's one of the many things that, that colleges have to be, uh, have to be thinking about and questioning right now is, you know, are we are we offering what people want and need? Are we offering it in a way that is going to be uh, responsive to them? You know, the, a lot of people are now talking about hybrid lectures, and there's still a, 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 or hybrid classes, and there's still a feeling I think that you know the in person uh, face to face uh, teaching is is best, and I think that's probably true. Um, uh, but I I think that not looking at things like uh, flipped classrooms uh, or uh, doing more project-based learning with pretty much everything you can you can do with that. Um, I think bypassing that, not taking that seriously as, as, as good options um, is going to be not only maybe not the best for your institution, maybe a competitive disadvantage uh, before too long as, as more uh, institutions really try to change up how they teach and, and maybe are able to show some results from that. Yeah, and the difficulty, Lee, is, is that as institutions become more pinched, um, the least expensive method of teaching is lecture. The most expensive right. is project-based, collaborative, interdisciplinary um, activities, all these kinds of things. Those are more expensive. It's um, It's going to be... Um, I, I think the schools that are most vulnerable moving forward are going to be those schools that that get themselves into the spiral down where the quality is pinched because of resources and then it gets worse and then the resources get worse and, and it just keeps spiraling. And the schools that are going to be really successful are the ones that that find a way to keep um, cr- keep changing and adapting and um finding the more engaging ways of teaching and then they'll spiral, no, I, they'll spiral up. I, I think you're right. And, and, you know, so, uh, some of the folks that I've spoken to, um, um, you know, and I've written about innovation and, and, um, how colleges do it and the things that can prevent them from doing it. I actually, that was part of another report that I worked on. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, elite institutions, wealthy institutions, they can probably pretty much do whatever they want and continue to be fine because they're not going to hurt for, you know, they're not going to hurt for applicants. They're not, they're not going to hurt for good students. They're not going to hurt for, you know, uh, future donations and other things like that. Um, you know, at the, at the bottom sort of of the spectrum, they're going to be institutions that are um, reacting because they have to, they're kind of doing things out of desperation. Uh, but then there's this this big middle area where you have institutions that are doing okay, you know, maybe not as, as well as they would like to or as well as they once did, uh, but they're not out of options yet. You know, they still have some resources. They still have some options. And I think that those are the schools particularly that need to be uh, really thinking hard about what they're doing and how they're doing it and what they might need to do differently while they still have some uh, some maneuvering room, 
you know, years ago, we used to talk in the newsroom about what we called the shakeout because it was becoming apparent that uh, institutions were going to start to close. And, you know, people will argue back and forth about whether more institutions close now than they used to. And I was just reading something the other day that argued that really there aren't more institutions closing, but it's sort of a different level of institution you know it's more of the small private liberal arts college that you might have heard of is is more in trouble than it might have been in the past um but the 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 issue was we started to think i started to think was not so much that so schools are things are getting intense schools are going to start closing it's not so much that schools are going to start closing some of them will schools are going to start changing uh and this is both for private and public institutions. And the important question is, are you going to sort of change in ways that you want to? Are you going to change in ways that you have to? And I think that the schools that can make smart decisions and apply some resources uh, strategically um, can change in ways that they want to. And I think that schools that maybe are a little more caught unawares by what's happening right now are going to end up changing in ways that they have to, which is probably going to be less desirable, less fun for everyone. That's what we, we recently interviewed the president of the Northeast commission on higher education. And, uh, she, she shared those same sentiments that it's much easier to change while you still have options than it is to have change forced upon you. And, and in her area of the country, um, it probably is the most likely where change is going to be forced upon some institutions. What we, um, nobody likes change being forced on them. No, they, they don't. We, we like to do it on our own time. And make but, our own choices about what those yeah. changes are going to be. But to the degree that we're insulated from this problem in Utah and in this Intermountain West region, um, partly because, you know, in, in Utah, we only have one liberal arts college. And we only have two private traditional colleges um, here. Most, most of us are public schools. There's four regional universities, two research universities, mm-hmm. um, two community colleges, and then we have a couple private. So we don't have that many. But, but I'm hoping, and I know this... Um, doesn't sound great for a president to say this if any of his faculty and staff are listening. <laughs> well, there's a small chance of that. So there you go. But we, we really hope that we get to learn and become better as a result of what's happening around the country. Um, would hate to have all of these stresses that are motivating change throughout the country not help motivate change here for us as well. Because ultimately... Even if the high school enrollments continue strong in Utah, a third of our students come from out of state. And so as other states um, reform and develop their quality experience, if we don't continue to up the ante here, um, then we'll at least see an impact on that. And um, a lot of states are finding that... um, one of the solutions to their problems is to increase their enrollment efforts in places where there's a lot more students. I mean, it's not a great yeah. it's not a great enrollment strategy to come and start recruiting in in a state like uh, North Dakota if there's a lot of students there because there's not that many students, even though the high school graduate rates continue to climb. So they're they're not going to solve their problems in the Intermountain West, but. Um, but we'll see more and more of that happen. I, I, I remember um, being in Illinois, talking to some universities there, and I, I don't remember the number, Lee. I wish I, I, wish I did. But it, it was something like 200 universities have full-time enrollment officers in Chicago. <laughs> mm. um, people are traveling around yeah. trying to, mm. trying to that fill their, fill hole their is classes. Played out. Right. Well, you know, it's it's one of the interesting things about uh, covering the stuff I've been covering and about working on this report is 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 looking at sort of how people are responding to this, and certainly, um, especially public institutions and private institutions too, looking outside their you know their traditional sort of uh, area that they draw from. 
mean, everyone's doing that. And, you know, sort of uh, recruiting international students is uh, is just that kind of writ large, right? You're looking outside, yep. not only of your state, you're looking outside of the country. Um, but, you know, one of the things I found is a lot of people are talking about the need to look beyond that traditional high school grad, traditional age, high school graduate, you know, first time, full time student, you know, period, uh, looking at doing a better job with all of the folks out there who maybe have some college credit and haven't graduated. There are about 30 million people in the United States who have some college graduate, have some college credit and no degree, which is, uh, half again as much as the 200 um, or sorry, 20 million uh, people currently enrolled in college, you know, and there's, there are various approaches to that. Uh, I think it's difficult. You know, I talk to people at, uh, who run colleges and uh, this will come up. It's like, well, what about adult students? You know, what about adult learners? And almost everyone says, yes, we need to do a better job with that. But not that many people have actual plans in place and, and are doing things to do a better job of that. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a huge market. And a lot of people would argue that, you know, the United States is not going to make its education goals, that many states are not going to make their education goals unless they do a better job with those uh, adult learners. Um, but it's still something that's just, uh, you know, people are not used to thinking about it. It's tough. Uh, it requires a really different way of thinking about what you do. So it's not, it's certainly not low hanging fruit. Yeah. You have to offer classes when they can take them and you have to do it in a modality that works for them. This, that I'm a perpetual optimist, even though sometimes I don't talk like it. <laughs> you are. But the, but the great news about this enrollment challenge that is moving across the country is that we are all going to hopefully we're all going to improve the quality of our experience to attract and retain students, and we're going to find students that we typically have not paid enough attention to, like these adult learners, um, and adapt what we're doing to accommodate them. This is this is really good. the the um, The easy fishing is over. It's time to get a boat and launch out into the waters and. And stop just casting from the shore and collecting what we can. Well, what is the last piece of advice that you would give us, um, or or what what are you seeing that we should be most uh, aware of, or concerned about? Um, gosh, that's really hard for me to say, and I always hesitate to say it because you know, I get to come in and, and talk to people and learn things and sort of <laughs> suggest them. And then I get to go back to my office where I don't have to worry about meeting uh, a budget or managing, you know, That's several right. hundred, a few thousand people sometimes. Uh, so, you know, on, on, on one hand, I, I feel like it's hard for me to say anything uh, about this. But I guess the, the general advice would be Colleges really need to be thinking hard um, and examining and questioning how they do almost everything. And, you know, that they need to be looking at their expenses and, and how they can better control them, because that's not something generally that colleges are good at. They need to be thinking about their uh, enrollment strategy and not just in terms of, you know, which list are we going to buy, but you know, are these the students that that we can get in the future? You know, if, if these are not the students we can get, who are they going to be? What are the students that we want? Um, you know, how, how are we going to offer them something that is meaningful to them that will make them want to make the commitment and make the investment to come here and not just say, you know, because, you know, just as universities just used to sort of welcome you in and then turn you loose and let, leave you to figure it out. The assumption was always that this thing that we're offering is, you know, you can spend a lot of money to have it, but really it's priceless and it's a lifetime's education and it sets you up for all these things and teaches you all these things. And for the most part, that was true. But um, I think that 
colleges really need to be examining what their value proposition is. And I know that's language that makes people grumpy sometimes, but they really need to be thinking about what they offer and why it matters to something, to, to, to someone out there who's considering their institution. Not its intellectual value, because that's not really what we're talking about here. Uh, but the, the, the value that the person will get from um, from making that commitment and, and, and incurring those expenses. And the intellectual value is part of that, but it can't be the whole thing. It can't just be, you know, you will learn the great books and, you know, you will learn how to think and all those things are super important, but it has to be um, presented in a way, it has to be offered in a way that makes it feel like something that they want to commit that time and money and chunk of their lives to. Yeah. I'm really proud of the faculty and staff at SUU. There's been so much work on um, recruiting, retaining, uh, increasing the value, and and hopefully we can just keep keep on it and keep, well, I hope keep so. going. I hope so. I mean, you know, I don't think I've ever visited a college that didn't have a lot to offer the the people who attend there, uh, and it's unfortunate that. That's being questioned so much now, but you know maybe the good outcome of all this is all that questioning will, in the end, make you know what it, what colleges offer stronger and and what the colleges themselves stronger. Ultimately, we hope. Well, and it's uh, it's a deep part of our culture that we believe that questioning leads to learning. So, of all organizations, uh, universities should be the last to be troubled by being questioned. You said it, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, just because it shouldn't be that way, it doesn't mean it isn't. Right. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today, Lee Gardner. He's a senior writer with the Chronicle of Higher Education. Lee joined us from his home in Baltimore along with his canine friends. Lee, thanks for joining us. And for our listeners, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back with another podcast very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu. <laughs>